guys. Good morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see you. Man, um, uh, preachers hate rainy Sunday mornings. Do you know this? Do you know this? If you think you hate them, listen. Preach just a little bit of insider baseball. Preachers, we look... Well, first of all, we have an almanac in our office. Robert, do you know what an almanac is? You know what an almanac is, don't you? If, if you're a farmer and you depend on weather, you know what the, the almanac is. So we have an almanac, so we're like looking through, projecting what Sundays are going to be like. And then a week out, we're watching the weather every day to see, is it going to be nice? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be ice? You know, what, what's Sunday going to be like? Because Sundays, uh, when the weather is bad, it just affects attendance. So we dread rainy Sunday mornings. That in mind, when we get to church, the people who show up are the ones who really love Jesus. So we feel a kindred spirit with you. So um, you guys love Jesus. Now, I know uh, there might be some folks that are not here because of the flu, but if they stayed home because of uh, the bad weather, I hope they get the flu. No, no, I just, no, I don't mean that at all. Not at all. Uh, anyway, it's good to see you guys. If you're uh, brand new at Rocky River or we just haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Jimmy. I'm the lead pastor here at Rocky River, and I uh, hope that you feel just right at home this morning. If uh, you have your Bible with you, open it up or turn it on. Go to the New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. I think Donnie's already encouraged you to take out your message notes. So hopefully you have those out. You'll see some fill-in-the-blank notes there. Um, there's also some, uh, well, the scripture passage we're going to be looking at. It's on the screens behind us, but it's also printed there in those notes for you. And let me say this. If you don't have your own copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. So on your way out this morning, if you'll just go by the information table, you'll see stacks of Bibles at both ends. Just pick one up, take it with you. You don't have to ask for it. I'm telling you now that, uh, that it's yours. And then if you are a first-time guest, be sure to pick up a free copy of our book, Unshakable, Standing Strong When Things Go Wrong. So it seems that Americans have discovered Prince Phillips. uh, Actually, not Phillips. I'm thinking about Philip a different, anyway. (laughs) Prince Philip of Edinburgh. And uh, that is mostly due to the television series that's on Netflix right now called The Crown. And uh, it's kind of interesting that people are, are learning about who Prince Philip is. Because to be honest with you, um, we don't know him because of anything he's ever really done. I mean, to, to be honest with you, he is a pretty insignificant character, at least in the scene of, of world history. He's had a privileged, privileged life. He, he's had an interesting um, uh, seat on the bus, as they might say. But himself, he, he's never really done that much. In fact, uh, we know Prince Philip for two reasons. Uh, one has kind of made him famous. The other has made him infamous. He's famous because he's married to Queen Elizabeth II. And that's, that's pretty much it. He, he married a queen. Reluctantly, he married Queen Elizabeth. And then what has made him infamous over the years is his, his verbal gaffes 
the, the sometimes stupid, we can use stupid in, in church, can't we? At least at the 830. So it's just stupid. He, 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 through the years, he has said some really stupid things, some really um, unpolitically correct kind of things. And I mean, even before there was such thing as political incorrectness, this guy, he's, he's just said some, some really bad things. And uh, in fact, a few years ago when he turned 90, uh, an independent newspaper in London put out the top 90 list of uh, Prince Philip's biggest verbal gaffes. And uh, it, it's really something to read. But, but one of the stories that I like about Prince Philip, and again, he hasn't done a whole lot, but he's been all over the world, every place you can imagine, and he's written about it and talked about it. And uh, once years ago, when most of the nation of Africa was still under control of the British crown, Prince Philip was taking a, a royal tour through Africa. And then he was in, I think, Rhodesia. And he's having dinner. It's a state dinner. And this very well-spoken, nice-looking African waiter came over to the table. And uh, it was time to take the order. And so he, he said something like, uh, Royal Highness, would you like the fish or the duck? And Prince Philip said, well, tell me about the duck. And the waiter said, well, basically, it is a chicken that can swim. <laughs> now, 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 this was in a, a memoir about his life. And, and the, the author's goal was to show you j- just how, how, how big the difference was between African culture and European culture. And so, so this, this guy didn't really know what the prince's knowledge might be of ducks. And so he just started at the very beginning and said, well, basically, it's, it's an aquatic chicken. <laughs> now, now, you and I know what the prince was asking, don't we? What he wants to know is, uh, well, what kind of duck is it? How do you prepare it? Are other people ordering it? Do they seem to be enjoying it? He wants to know this waiter's expert opinion on that duck. But again, there is such a difference between the African culture and the European culture that this guy just felt like he had to define reality for him. Now, I'll tell you, as a pastor... I have lots, especially these days, I have lots of tell me about the duck conversations as it relates to Jesus and the church. Because there is such a a disconnect, there is such a difference between our culture and the church culture. and, And our culture and what the church ought to be about. And, you know, there was a time when you didn't have to explain the duck. You didn't feel like when it came to church, you had to define reality. But church and culture has changed so much. There was a time in America where the, the culture sort of worked for us. It worked in our favor. But that's, that's all changed. It's, it's changed a lot. Let, let me give you a, an example or two here. 
when I was a kid, we did not have homework on Wednesday nights. Do you know why? Prayer meeting. Church was on Wednesday nights, and there were all sorts of activities at the church I grew up in, and I I grew up in the Charlotte metro area. I grew up in West Charlotte, and so um, that's that's not only in, in the Bible Belt, that's like right in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And so we had all kind of things going on on Wednesday nights, but, but not just most of the kids, but the teachers. I mean, the teachers, they went to church too, and, and, and maybe they went to a, 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 a mainline brand church like I did, or maybe they went to one of the off-brands, but, but, but they went to church too. So they had stuff going on, and uh, not so much anymore. I remember, Billy, and I don't know if you can remember back this far or not, but I remember when we didn't have ball practice on Wednesday nights. In fact, the West Mech Optimist League, which is kind of the area that I grew up in, they were playing in some kind of championship round for the weekend coming up, and they got special permission from the pastors in the area to have a special called Wednesday night practice. Can you imagine that? All of that's changed. I, I, I remember the, the first time I heard about kids practicing baseball and playing baseball games on Sundays, just like Saturday was Sunday. Lots of things have changed, and I could go on and on and on about that, but now you feel like you have to to tell people about the duck. You have to describe the duck. You have to tell people about Jesus and who he really is because the History Channel, they, they show so many shows that it seems like a documentary, but it's really just some facts here and there, but mostly it's fiction. So people have the skewed idea of Jesus, but not only Jesus, the church. So people don't know anymore who who Jesus is or what the church is and what, what he's really all about. And listen, that's not just out there. The confusion is also in here. It's not a new thing, really. Um, the church at Colossae was experiencing it. There was confusion in the church about who Jesus is and how we're supposed to live for him and how we're supposed to follow him and what it looks like to be the church together. So Paul writes this letter, Colossians, to the Christians at Colossae. And he, he, he spends nearly all of first chap, the first chapter, once he gets past, you know, the, the welcome and, hey, how's it going? Uh, he, he spends m- most of the time talking about who Jesus is. Like in, in verse 15, he says, uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he says things like, God was delighted to have his fullness dwell in his son Jesus. And all of that means that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, well, he's God. And in chapter 2, 
uh, Paul begins to make a turn. Now, he'll, he'll come back to the Jesus theme at other points throughout the rest of the letter. But he, he begins to turn not, not so much from talking about who Jesus is, but now he talks about how to live for him. Once you know that Jesus is God, once you know that Jesus is Christ Jesus, the Messiah of God, King Jesus, this is how you live for him. And so we're going to talk about the church today. I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to describe the duck, to clear up some of the confusion that we sometimes have about what the church is and what it's about and, and, and what we do. And I want us to just dive right in this morning to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read all of these verses in a chunk, and then I'll go back and unpack them. Everybody still with me? Got your message notes out, ready to roll? All right. That's because you love Jesus. Yep, you're here on a rainy Sunday, so I know it's true. Paul says... For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you. Now, now you'll, you'll see it at the end of this verse, but Paul doesn't, doesn't know these people personally. He knows about them. They, they don't know him personally, but they know about him. They've never met each other face to face. And so Paul's trying to create a connection here with them. Uh, so that they understand the authority that he has to speak this into their lives. And he's already appealed to them as an apostle. So he has the position, but now he wants there to be a heart connection. So I'm not just pounding this into you. I'm telling you this out of love, that I care for you. Even though we've not met, I care about you. I'll explain more about that as we go along. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. Now, guys, listen. And when I say guys, I don't mean gen that generically. I mean to the men in the room. I know this sounds a little bit chickish. But it's not. Paul is a real man writing to men and women. But, but this is not a sappy for women and children only kind of thing. When he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. We think hearts. It's Valentine's Day coming up. And so that just means something much. I want you to be encouraged and just join together in love. When we talk about love, that's just a wastebasket term, isn't it? Because we talk about love. I love my wife. I love Jesus. I love a good steak. There's a difference in those things, right? Should be. But he says, I want their hearts to be encouraged. You know, you know why? You know why he says that? Because Many of them are discouraged. They're struggling for their faith. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're not being killed for their faith yet, but that's common. So I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. Love's going to be a big theme today. We'll, we'll get into that in a few minutes. 
so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. And we, we live in the age of reason, where people want to reason everything out. And there were some smart, false teachers that were in Colossae and in the Colossian church. And they were, they were teaching things that were not true. But man, they sounded true. They sounded like a reasonable argument. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Those are military terms, the word for ordered and strength. And um, apparently, while the Colossian church is really struggling with some things and, and they're being attacked, they're holding up, Scott. Like, 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 a military, like a soldier would hold up in the face of the enemy. Yeah, they've been shot at. The enemies come against them, but they're, they're hanging in there. They're, they're holding on. Verse 6. So then, just as you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in, in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude." Everything that comes before verse 6 and everything that comes after is built on this one phrase. Continue to live in him. Another way of saying this would be continue to walk in him. Continue to be orderly and strengthened in your faith in Christ. And so what does that look like? What, what does it look like to walk with Christ? What does it look like to live in Christ. Well, we're going to talk about these things today in an individual, personal way. But just understand that when, when Paul talks about how to live for Jesus, Merlene, he's, he's not only talking to the individual, but he's talking to all of us. He says, Merlene, this is how you live for Jesus. But then Rocky River Church, this is how we all live Jesus. So it's not an individual thing, it's an, it's an us thing. So this is how you walk with the Lord. This is how you live in Jesus. Now, in just these seven verses, Paul gives us like ten marks or ten characteristics of what it looks like to live in Jesus, to walk in Jesus. I don't have time to give you ten, so I'm going to give you about three. But I think they're really important. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. The first thing that Paul says to us about how to live in Jesus, how to walk in Jesus individually and then as a church, is he says, the church is worth the struggle. He says the church is worth the struggle. And once you've got that written down, I want you to look at me and listen. I'll just wait for eye contact. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. Listen, I, I know over the, the years, and not just 
say in the 20 or 21st century, but at different times through the centuries, the church has taken some heat. The church has taken a bad rap. Sometimes it's been, it's, it's, we earned it. And I realize that on this side of eternity, the church is never going to be perfect. Certainly this church is never going to be perfect, but, but no church is perfect. Churches have problems. Churches make mistakes. Leaders in churches, they make mistakes. Sometimes they do it innocently, sometimes blindly or foolishly, sometimes intentionally. But the church is not perfect. But the Bible also says, Paul says it here in Colossians, later in this letter, that the church is the body of Christ. The Bible also says that the church is the bride of Christ. One of the things I've had to do this week is just repent over some of the things that I've said about the church and churches. And I would say to you, be careful what you say about the church. Be careful what you say about other church leaders. Be careful of the things that you talk about that are going on in other churches when you don't know the whole story, when you don't know the details, when you're not responsible for that local church. Because again, the church is called the bride of Christ. And listen, you can say whatever you want to me or about me. You start talking about my bride, we're going to have some problems. The church can be a tough place to be a part of at times. And it was tough in Colossae as Paul is writing to them because they're struggling. Paul knows they're struggling. And that's why he says, I'm struggling with you. How was Paul struggling? Well, Paul was writing this letter from prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. Basically, everything that he says in chapter 1, that, that's the, the sum of the message that he's been preaching. And he, he's in prison for it. And it's a tough prison gig that he's got going on. And he says, I'm struggling with you. And when he says you, he also mentions the church at Laodicea. He's probably thinking about all of the churches in the Lycus Valley. And the thing that those churches have in common is that they are Gentile churches. You remember what Gentiles are? Gentiles are people who are not Jews. So most of the people who are in Colossians or in Colossae that are Christians, they are Gentiles. Paul says, listen, I'm right there in that struggle with you. I identify with your struggling. I'm in this prison because I've been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. See, Paul had been preaching, and you can read all about this in Acts 21 through 28. Paul has been preaching in Jerusalem. He's been preaching the gospel, the truth about Jesus, that he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and and. You can know salvation from the Lord. He's sharing the good news. Well, when the Jewish leaders heard Paul preaching, they were upset. But when he mentioned Gentiles and that they can be a part of the kingdom of God, they lost their minds. They, they had 
Paul arrested and called for his death. Now, the thing is, Paul was not only Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen. And so Roman citizens had rights. A Roman citizen, before he or she was put to death, they could appeal to the emperor. So Paul has appealed to the emperor to go back to Rome. So he's left Jerusalem. Now he's in Rome. Again, all for preaching the gospel. And by the way, shortly after this letter, Paul was put to death by Nero during a great Roman persecution. He says, I get the struggle. And Paul has given up everything in this struggle. And it was worth it to him. He gave gave up all of his creature comforts. He's given his blood, sweat, and tears. Pretty soon, literally, he's going to give his life for the church. And it's worth it. Why? Because the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the body of Christ. And Christ Jesus, King Jesus, works through his church to reach the world. If we're not doing our jobs, well... The world suffers for that. But Jimmy, I just don't like the church. Yeah, I get it. There are times I don't like it either. Some of the biggest hurts, other than losing loved ones, the biggest hurts that me and my family have experienced in life were due to relationships and problems inside of the local church. I get it. I get it. I had a pastor ask me one time, he said, do you ever think about quitting? I said, most every Monday morning, I think about quitting. But I never would. Let me tell you something. The struggle in the local church, is, it's worth it. It's worth our blood, our sweat, our tears. It's worth whatever we sacrifice. It's worth all of the time that we put into it. It's worth your life. It's worth my life. It's the body of Christ. And I know that some of you are in banking. Some of you are in racing. Some of you are teachers. No matter what you do to earn your living, nothing you do during the week is more important than what you do here for the local church. Period. Uh, again, I, I know that you're a banker. I know that you're into banking. And that, that's hugely important. That, that's, that's really important. That's, a, that's like a grown-up job. That's what me and Adam and Donnie would say about your job. You have a grown-up job. That, that's awesome. But at the end of the day, it's only money. Only money. I know you're, you're in racing, and that's not only a grown-up job. That's cool and awesome. At the end of the day, we're talking about sheet metal and fuel. It's just racing. But in here, it's about life and death. It's about the struggle for eternal life and death. And whatever you pay out for the church, whatever it takes out of you, it's worth it. All right, I got to move a little quicker here. Here's the second thing that you need to know about the church. The church is for difference. Not difference, like there's a difference between Eagles fans and Patriots fans. 
Not that there's a difference between white people and black people. We have different color skin, different pigmentation. Not, not that kind of difference, but difference. Like we're, we are different. When Paul talks about the mystery of God, and he says it's Christ, here's what he means. I'm just going to give you the quick version of this. The mystery is in the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament. If you know where to look for it and you know how to see it, it's there in the Old Testament. But certainly in the New Testament, the mystery is that God is expanding his kingdom. So it's not just a Jewish thing anymore. It's a people thing. With Jesus, it's like God is saying to the whole world, now all of you who are outsiders can be insiders. That's why I love the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman so much. John chapter 4, Jesus has this life-changing encounter with this woman who, who has a, a loose reputation uh, in, the, in the community. She, she's been married a number of times and divorced. Now she's living with a man who's not her husband. And th- there's this whole conversation between Jesus and this woman. The disciples have gone away. When they come back, they see Jesus talking to a woman. They don't understand it because Jesus is breaking all kinds of social barriers and, uh, and rules and even some religious barriers. And the point of it, Jesus says later, is that this gospel, this good news, is that anyone can have access to God. Anyone can be a part of this expanding kingdom of God. It's not just a white thing or a black thing or a conservative thing or a liberal thing. It's a people thing. And now outsiders can be insiders. Fellowship. You heard this word, fellowship? It it means different things to different people. And the generation I come out of, when you say fellowship, what what do we think about, Beverly? We think about a fellowship hall. There's a building out there. And if you're you're Baptist like like me, uh, Lord have mercy, we use that fellowship hall all the time because... You're eating out there, and you're having coffee, and you're having these little social gatherings. Well, for so many years, that was what fellowship is all about. Now, when you hear people talking about fellowship, that's kind of a buzzword today. I just want some fellowship, brother. I just want, I just, it makes me want to barf when I hear that over-spiritualized way of talking about things. We just want fellowship. What you mean is you want some friends, who look like you, think like you, act like you, talk like you. And that's just not what the church is all about. That was a hard thing for the, for the disciples to get their minds around too. W- one of the great stories in, uh, in John 15 is where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he says to them and to us, greater love hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends if you lay down your life for one another. And when you think about who's sitting around that group, maybe sitting around that campfire, or maybe they're in a fellowship hall somewhere eating lunch, I don't know, but wherever they're hanging out together, when you look at these guys, they couldn't be any more different. You have a guy there named Simon the Zealot. Zealot means that if, to the Romans, he's a terrorist. He's a freedom fighter. And then beside him or just across the fire somewhere, you've, you've got... Um, Matthew, who was a tax collector. 
He sold out to the Romans. And Jesus is saying you're different. But you're together. You're part of the same group. And he's teaching them that the church is a place of difference. So don't go to a church, not this church or anywhere, where you're just trying to look for people who are like you. How boring would that be anyway? We're different. Who wants to go to a church where everybody's under 40? I probably did when I was under 40. But who wants to go to that church? Who wants to go to a church where it's just people over 60? I don't want to go to that church either. I pastored that church, actually, (laughs) years ago. Got to be more. The church is a place for difference. Not everybody's going to look like you. Not everybody's going to think like you or vote like you. And that's okay. It's not just okay. That's, that's part of the plan. And then here's the third thing I want to show you this morning. I've really got to zoom through this. Paul says that the church is held together by love. Now, when he says love, listen to me. He's not talking about how you define love and the American culture, or in the Western culture. He's not talking about a definition you can find for love if you go to an English Bible, because biblical love can't be defined in an English Bible. So let me tell you what biblical love is. It's four things. You have your notes there. Number one, love is a rugged commitment. It's a rugged commitment. Love in the Bible is a covenant, a contract, an agreement. And you can see that going all the way back to Abraham. Now listen, ladies, I know that Wednesday when you wake up, and I know I'm making some assumptions here, and this may seem gender biased, and I don't don't mean that necessarily, but I I would say, and you would probably agree with me, that most women look a little more toward Valentine. Well, I'm just going to get in trouble here. My wife likes Valentine's Day a lot better than I do. And I would say that's true in a lot of homes. But, but ladies, I'm sure that when you wake up, if you are excited about Valentine's Day, you're probably not going to wake up and go, man, I'm just really glad that I have a contract, an agreement, a covenant with my husband. Because that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like it's from the heart. That doesn't sound much. That's not, you're never going to read that on a Hallmark Valentine's Day card. Happy agreement day. Happy contractual agreement today. Happy marriage covenant day. But that's exactly what it is. Karen hates to hear me talk about this, by the way. Um, All this stuff about there's someone for everybody and all that, maybe, I, I don't know. I don't think so. All this stuff about two people, they lock eyes from across the room. They just float across the room and, you know, it's, it's bliss for Maybe that happens sometimes. But let me, let me tell you the danger in talking about falling in love. And you can see it all through our culture. I don't even have to explain it to you. If you can fall in love, you can fall out of love. And that's not biblical love. Biblical love is an agreement. Here's the way God said it. I will be your God. Said that to Abraham or uh, to to Moses and all the people of God. I will be your God and you will be my people. And at times, Israel did not live like the people of God. 
They were not always faithful to him, but listen, God was always faithful to them. He recognizes the contract, and it's a rugged one. Okay. The next thing I want you to see is that love is a commitment to presence. Not, not the kind of presence that you give for Christmas or like a Valentine's Day present, but presence. Love means that you spend time with someone. It means learning a person's name. It means getting to know them in a story. One of the things I don't like about our Sunday service schedule is I feel like especially between this service and the next service, not only do we have to hurry up, we have to hurry out. And sometimes it's the hurrying out that makes us overlook the people that we pass, the people that we ought to be getting to know, people we ought to be connected with. Listen to me. That's why over the next couple of weeks when you're looking at the bulletin, the worship bulletin, you see in the announcement sheet that we're having a membership class, you ought to be a part of that. You ought to sign up for it. That's why you ought to go out there to that table, that Valentine's Day table, see Meredith, who is so much better than Adam. I don't know if you know that yet, but if you get to know her, you will. And you ought to come and be a part of this thing on Friday night so that you can learn some names and learn some stories. Presence. That's why, listen, church should not be something you attend based on what the weather is like, Marion, unless it's icy. Free pass on the ice. It shouldn't be an option. Your kids shouldn't wake up on Sunday morning and say, are we going to church this morning? They ought to just know, get out of bed, we're going to church. It's what we do. We're going to go be in the presence of the Lord. Number three, love is a commitment to advocacy. Advocacy. Kind of a politicized word, a little bit politically charged, but here's what it means. It means I've got your back. Jesus never, well, Not in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament can you find God saying, hey, I've got your back. But that's what's implied when he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. We're going to tabernacle together. I'm going to be there with you through David, through a king, through prophets, through uh, the temple, ultimately through Jesus. When he's saying, I'm going to be with you, my presence is going to be with you, he's also saying, I've got your back. Listen, you need some people in a local church that have your back and you need to have the back of other people in the church. It's just what we're supposed to do and that's what love is. And then finally, love is a commitment to transformation. Jimmy, what in the world does that mean? Over the top of that, once you have um, transformation written down, just write change. When you spend enough time with the person, you start to become like that person. Am I right? Listen, in my life, I need a little bit of chaos and a little bit of order. That's in my office. That's why I like things at home. Karen, not so much. Karen likes order all the time. Like me, I have to move the furniture around sometimes at least in my office, I have to move things around. So it, it, there, there's something different. There's something changing because if things stay the same, I just sort of die in my mind. But Karen, Karen likes things to be orderly. Karen is tidy. Me, not so much. Not so much. But over the years, she's rubbed off on me. 
And she would kill me if I told you that I've kind of rubbed off on her in some ways too. <laughs> but that's what happens when you spend time with each other. When you make a rugged commitment that you're going to love somebody no matter what, like God loves us. When you make the commitment that you're going to be in the presence of these people that you've made a, a contract, an agreement with, this rugged commitment of love. When you become an advocate, you start to change each other. Like the more time you spend with Jesus, the more like Jesus you become. I want us to pray together. And uh, I want to ask you to stand first. Just bow your head and close your eyes. And I, I want to close this way. There's not a few things that I'm asking you to do with this message. They're, they're not a bunch of application points. You know, sometimes in a message, they're just things that you need to learn. They're things that you need to know that puts other things into perspective. So I just wanted you to know this morning that the church is worth struggling. It's, it's worth whatever it costs you and me. It's worth our time. It's worth our energy. It's worth fixing bad relationships when they pop up. It's too important just to quit and walk away from. It's a place of difference where people like, like you and me can participate and be a part. The, the church is a place, it should be a place where people can come no matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done in life, no matter what's been done to them. So that they too have the opportunity to hear about the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ and then become a part of that community, that fellowship. And church is about love. And let me tell you something, that's not based on chemistry, it's based on commitment. A rugged commitment. And that's what we need. We need more people at Rocky River Church that are willing to be a part of the struggle. To be more welcoming to the difference. And love it with a commitment that you just ain't going to walk away. Lord, I pray that not only for our church, I pray that for all of the marriages and other relationships that are represented in this room. Wednesday is the day of love in our country. It's when we celebrate it the most with all sorts of things. But God, I pray that in this room, the relationships that are represented here, the, that Wednesday and every day would be, would be about a rugged commitment of sticking together and sticking it out. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.